Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people on the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm William Rogerberg, a member of VAEA. Thank you to all our listeners. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Rebecca Meyer-Rao of Worker Justice Wisconsin. Today we take a deep dive into uncompete clauses and how they affect workers. Find out about plans to celebrate Juneteenth in a big way. Get an update on the strike at True Stage, for, formerly known as CUNA Mutual, and much more. And if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. OPEIU Local 39 at CUNA Mutual True Stage suspended their strike last week, but the workers of OPEIU Local 39 continue to gather support. Frank Emsbach has the story. OPIU Local 39 leadership won the enthusiastic support of the National Union at their convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania this week. Joe Vica, chief shop steward of the Kina True Stage Group, describes the reception the local received from the International Union. Immediately upon the international convention opening up in Philadelphia, uh, one of the first things that our international president said was that the International Union supports our efforts for uh, fighting for a fair contract and securing our pension and job security and protection from outsourcing at True Stage. That set the tone from there on out where uh, our local was receiving support from everyone within our international, including Liz Schuler, the president of the AFL-CIO. What kind of support are we talking about? Really, we've had conversations with uh, everyone within the, the international, including and all the way up through the president, about financial resources, about staff, about uh, solidarity and developing more uh, connections between other unions. Um, support particularly for uh, unions that have connections to the credit union movement, given the fact that unions and credit unions historically are very tied together. So what are the next steps here? The next steps are to continue engaging members because our strike has been suspended and not ended, uh, meaning that we still have a 92% authorization vote to go out on uh, strike if it's deemed necessary. In addition to that, we want to build other forms of community and public support for our campaign in order to put pressure on True Stage to bargain in good faith with us. Um, since returning from uh, going out on strike, they feel like they can go back to their old ways of bargaining with us, uh, which is to stall, uh, to refuse to bargain, and to continue committing unfair labor practices. So with that said, we are going to continue to organize in order to prevent that. What has transpired since the workers have returned to work? Uh, within 26 hours of us returning from our unfair labor practice strike, they canceled two bargaining sessions that we were supposed to hold this past week. This week, we did meet for a session through mediation with the employer. But despite having telling, telling us that they were 
going to come prepared with uh, proposals for the last couple of weeks, they came with nothing. So we're meeting, but it's clear that they're not actually interested in bargaining in good faith right now. Is there anything else you want to add? Just to let the Madison community know that our struggle at True Stage is nowhere near over. And so we're going to need to continue to to develop ways to force True Stage back to the bargaining table. And that means both internal and external organizing in order to put pressure on them. Thanks to Joe Pica for this interview. I'm Frank Kempsback for Madison Labor Radio. The Teamsters Union is in contract negotiations with United Parcel Service, or UPS. Greg Jaboski talks to Bill Carroll of Teamsters Local 344, which represents Wisconsin UPS workers. Today, the National Office of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters announced an overwhelming 97% vote by its members to authorize a strike against shipping giant UPS if negotiations on a satisfactory new contract aren't completed by the end of the current deal, which runs through July 31st. According to Teamsters General President Sean M. O'Brien, quote, the strongest leverage our members have is their labor, and they are prepared to withhold it to ensure UPS acts accordingly, unquote. The authorization vote was held at Teamster locals representing UPS drivers across the country, starting last week and ending yesterday. Should the 340,000 UPS Teamsters go on strike, it will be one of the largest strikes in U.S. history, and certainly the largest of the 21st century. In Wisconsin, all UPS drivers are represented by Teamsters Local 344. Labor Radio spoke yesterday, before today's announcement, to Bill Carroll, secretary-treasurer of Local 344, and a member of the National Negotiating Committee, who is in Washington, D.C. on a break from negotiations, and who describe what he sees as the current feelings of the membership. My feeling is that our members are very activated. They're ready to fight if they have to. We've had very good turnout at all of the facilities that we represent. We have 23 buildings across the state. The local unions hit virtually all ships that are available with members coming into the building and casting their votes. We're well over 50% at this point in time. Carol gave a general update on the atmosphere at the negotiating table. The sense has been that I think both sides are earnestly working towards a deal. However, you know, there's issues that both sides are demanding that they get. And, uh, of course, that's part of the negotiating process. But I can tell you that uh, we've got a very strong bargaining unit across the country. Uh, Wisconsin is right up there with fellow UPSers in other states, as strong if not stronger uh, in their resolve to get the contract that they deserve. Workplace condition issues are an important point of bargaining for the new contract, says Carroll. Now, I really can't get into specifics. Of course, there's uh, economic issues that are always important and probably of primary importance, but there's also some significant working condition issues that need to be addressed that are primary in our members' concerns about how they're treated on the job. Carroll was asked about similarities and differences between bargaining now and from those of the last big Teamsters UPS strike in 1997. Yeah, I was. As a matter of fact, at the time, I was a rank-and-file driver and a steward at that time, although the issues were different. It's the same employer, extremely profitable, and, uh, you know, it came down to, you know, more economics in the 97 strike. This one is not only economics, but there's some uh, serious working condition issues that need to be addressed here for our members to accept an offer from the company. To give an example of the kinds of workplace conditions that the union must fight tooth and nail for, CNN Business reported yesterday that UPS and the union reached a tentative agreement that will require UPS to provide air conditioning in new trucks that it introduces to its almost 100,000-strong vehicle fleet. That's right. In 2023, those brown trucks still aren't air-conditioned. 
Carroll also indicated that controlling widely reported issues such as increased in-truck surveillance and speed-up measures are big concerns for members in any new contract. Carroll expressed confidence in the Teamsters' position. Yesterday, before today's official strike authorization vote announcement, Carroll indicated turnout in preliminary numbers at Local 344 that matched today's national figures, and he feels that the rank-and-file has the negotiating teams back. Our members are showing us through the vote totals with this strike authorization vote that they're willing to support the national committee. Uh, I can tell you in Wisconsin, preliminary numbers are very high supporting the National Negotiating Committee to get the best deal they can. The resolve of our membership is going to determine the quality of this contract. And at this point in time, I'm very proud of our members and very confident that they are going to support the Teamster leadership in their efforts to get the best contract that they can. That was Bill Carroll of Teamsters Local 344 and a member of the National Negotiating Committee. With a 97% vote, UPS Teamsters voted to authorize a strike if they are not satisfied with a new contract. The current contract ends July 31st. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. I go work like a doctor when I rock the mic. You got to like the way I operate. I make miracles happen just from rapping. I'm so lyrically potent and I'm floating and exploding on the scene. Mean, I got the potential to make it go then chill. I got the credentials that is the essential to make a rap and chill. Then you know I will fulfill. Make a couple of mil as I build a guild for all the rappers to skill and kill the weak rappers and no frill. Hang him in effigy if he's a sucker. Hang him to the left of me because my right hand man is my mic stand and the microphone that I own in my game. This week, we take a deep dive into non-compete agreements, what they are, how they work, and their impact on working people. Researchers estimate that about one in five American workers is bound by a non-compete clause. These agreements impact worker mobility, earnings, and employment options. Reporter Janine Ramsey has the story. Aaron Halstead is a partner in the Hawks Quindell Law Firm in Madison, a firm that specializes in employee rights. What is a non-compete agreement? A non-compete agreement is a contract between an employer and an employee or occasionally between a business and an independent contractor in which the employer tries to set limitations on what the employee can do post-employment as far as earning a living. Why do we have these agreements? Employers use them to protect their businesses against employees working in the same field in which they're performing tasks for the employer during their employment. Everyone agrees that you can't compete against your employer while you're working for them, side business or something like that, where you're doing the same thing. The statute protects employers against competition where the agreement is necessary to protect what a court would call a legitimate business interest. So one that's not too far reaching in time in geographic scope, which also has other limitations, meaning that it doesn't go any further than is necessary to protect those interests. Every case is different in terms of analyzing what did the employee do for that employer? What are they trying to do now? What's the market like for the enterprise that the employer is engaged in? It's not always necessary to engage in that analysis because if a court determines that on its face, the agreement is overly broad, then it will strike that agreement down without even looking into the facts of the case. What sectors or types of jobs are subject to these agreements? I have had litigation in a barbershop, a pest control business, 
real estate and real estate appraisal businesses, medical device corporations. They can be from the smallest type of enterprise to extremely broad enterprises such as hospitals, dental office, CPAs, that type of thing. How might these agreements negatively impact working people? They purport to tell people who have gained experience and knowledge in doing a particular trade or profession from engaging in that to earn a livelihood. The agreements purport to tell them that they can't do that anymore after they leave this employer for whatever period of time the employer has specified and with respect to whatever geographic area or client base. But those are really the kinds of restrictions that courts are going to look at most. The length of time, the geographic scope, and the client base, or just the type of activity that the employer is saying the employee can't engage in after separation from employment. How do these agreements work? Do employees generally sign them as a condition of their employment? The majority of agreements are signed upon employment. So the employer is telling the employee, I'm not willing to employ you unless you agree to these. How do employers enforce the agreements? If they have information that suggests that the employee is violating the agreement, they'll send a letter, which is a cease and desist type of letter. If that doesn't work, then the employer can go into state circuit court or into federal court, depending on what the appropriate jurisdiction is, and ask a court to enjoin the employee from engaging in whatever the allegedly offensive activity is. And often the employer will then sue the employee's new employer, saying that they are essentially facilitating the employee's violation of the non-compete. What agency or entity oversees these agreements in Wisconsin? There is not any federal or state agency that has any jurisdiction over non-compete agreements. They're strictly a matter of contract, and therefore, the majority of the time, you're going to have jurisdiction in a state circuit court in whatever county. Is it different than in each state? It is. It is completely state to state. By way of example, Iowa's non-compete statute is far friendlier to employers than Wisconsin's. There's a rule in not just non-compete statutes, but really contract law generally called a blue pencil law. And that says in states that have that law, if a court sees a non-compete and finds some parts of it to be violative of the law, it has the right to just strike those words or sentences that need to be stricken in order to make it reasonable. Wisconsin does not have a blue pencil law. And that means that if any part of a non-compete agreement is overly broad, the court will strike the entire agreement. So it's not going to rewrite the agreement to make it reasonable. How has Wisconsin been with these laws? Wisconsin law from the beginning and continuing today, the overarching two maxims would be, one, that the agreement will be interpreted in favor of the employee and essentially a presumption in favor of the employee and against the agreement. The employer has the burden to come forward and prove to the court that the agreement's reasonably necessary to protect its legitimate business interests and no broader. How would the proposed rule change with the Federal Trade Commission change these agreements? It would change the uh, landscape dramatically in every state. Given the balance that we have on the United States Supreme Court right now, I find it hard to believe that that rule would be upheld. What has changed about these agreements over time? 
employers have gotten much better uh, about realizing what courts are going to enforce and not enforce. The buzz phrase is the janitor case, which is, let's say I'm an executive for a hospital and my agreement says you can't go work for any other hospital if you leave here. And the courts have said, well, does that mean you couldn't go work for any other hospital as a janitor? Could you not go work there as the valet? The court said you have to write an agreement so that it bars non-competitive activity, not just engaging in any activity for a competitor. What other considerations would you like to share about non-compete agreements? What I would share is that if your former employer comes after you saying that what you're doing is violating the non-compete. Don't take them at their word because the job of those cease and desist letters really is to frighten people into believing that they can't do things that often they can do. That was Aaron Halstead from the Hawks Quindell Law Firm. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Monday, June 19th, or Juneteenth, is a federal holiday, but the state of Wisconsin refuses to recognize it as a state holiday. Frank Emsbach reports. June 19th, or Juneteenth, has long been commemorated in the black community as the day when some of the last enslaved people in America were emancipated, June 19th, 1865. This year, for the first time, it is now a federal holiday observed this coming Monday. But the state of Wisconsin has not agreed to make it a state day of commemoration. Labor Radio spoke with Bill Franks, chair of the NAACP Dane County Labor and Industry Committee. We asked Bill, why hasn't the state joined with 24 other states in this commemoration? Wisconsin seems to be in that group of entities that engages in foot dragging. Well, why do they do that? Well, uh, they engage in foot dragging because they believe they can effectively get away with it without having us recognize that that's what they're doing. What would be the impact of the state's recognition of Juneteenth? The, the, the context in which we entered this discussion really had to do with the nurses at the uh, University of Wisconsin Hospitals and Clinics, and they're bargaining with the, um, with the authority there. And this was an item that they had initially raised as an issue with us a while back. This is also another uh, issue that the same issue came up with the OPIU Local 39 negotiations. In both cases, the unions wanted to have this rec- recognized as a paid holiday. With respect to the uh, the nurses, this is something that they've been at for quite some period of time. As you may recall, they went on a uh, strike notification early in the year. And then they basically are in NLRB court right now relative to their bargaining situation with the authority. OPIU is in a similar situation. They've been engaged in long-term contract negotiations, and this is another item that they have raised that the management thus far has rejected as as a non-starter. So at this point in time, we're continuing to support our brothers and sisters who are in contract negotiations over the same issue. And of course, we as Black people with the NAACP see the utility of having this as a paid holiday as it is in 27 other states in the union. So we don't see any reason to foot drag on this any longer at this time. Well, in your article in the Cap Times, you point out that there's a relationship between recognition of Juneteenth and provision of services. Yes. Can you expand on that? Well, basically what we're looking at, and this is the case with respect to Wisconsin specifically in a number of areas of disparities, and we just looked at the health area disparities, and we determined that, first of all, there are 
uh, undermelanized at the university in terms given their basis as a huge employer, the proportion of black folks and people of color that they have in their workforce, especially in the nursing arena, is not is not up to par. They're subpar. There's a relationship, we believe, between the proportion of folks that look like us that provide us with health care services, especially nurses, and patient outcomes. And we believe that that point has been validly proven based upon a number of studies that we've taken a look at and which are cited in the article that appeared in the Capital Times uh, just today. Well, what are the steps that need to be taken to achieve state recognition? First of all, I think we have to get a whole lot of people aboard in terms of doing other than what I call the honorific or the ceremonial type of proclamations that are usually made around this time of the year relative to Juneteenth. We need to move from declaring this and issuing that mission statement, actually taking action to increase the representation of uh, of folks that look like us in that particular workforce, especially since they're largest, one of the largest employers in Dane County. That, we believe, would be progress. Are there any other comments you wish to make? None, except we were uh, pleased to work with the nurses on this particular issue, just as we've been working with OPIU Local 39 with respect to their contract negotiation situation, and we will continue to do the same in the future and keep pushing for things because some things are just the right things to do. And this is just another example of the intersection between our interest, the general interest of the public, uh, and the community which we uh, intend to serve here in Dane County. Thanks to Bill Franks for this interview. I'm Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. In contrast to Wisconsin's governance logjam resulting from a gerrymandered legislature opposed to policy favored by a governor from the other party, Minnesota's legislature has pushed through a number of popular measures in the last few months. Keith Steffen has more details. According to a June 11th HuffPost article by Daniel Morans, Minnesota passed a massive program of progressive legislation this spring. Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party Governor Tim Walz commented, We're an island of decency up here. Minnesota Democrats won control of the state's executive branch, House, and Senate, but have only a one-seat majority in the Senate. The party accomplished the reforms in just four months, placing the state at the forefront of progressive policymaking. Stronger protections for workers include a prohibition on non-compete clauses, barring employers from holding anti-union captive audience meetings, and strengthening protections for meatpacking workers and Amazon warehouse employees. The new law mandates paid sick days, allows teachers' unions to bargain over educator-to-student ratios, and creates a statewide council to improve conditions for nursing home workers. Minnesota will offer 12 weeks of partially paid family and medical leave starting in 2026. Residents with incomes too high to qualify for Medicaid will be able to buy into Medicaid through a public option beginning in 2027. Families with annual income lower than $80,000 will have access to free public college tuition. 
low-income families will be eligible for a child tax credit of up to $1,750 per child, as well as an education credit of $1,500 per child. Breakfast and lunch will be provided at no cost to all public school students. All residents will be eligible for driver's licenses, regardless of immigration status. Couples earning $100,000 or less and singles under $78,000 will no longer have to pay state income taxes on Social Security benefits. Felons who have completed their prison sentences will have restored voting rights, expanding the franchise to 55,000 more people. Recreational marijuana is now legal, joining 22 other states. A new state law protects abortion rights, including protecting people traveling from other states for abortions. A trans refuge law also shields transgender children who travel to Minnesota for medical transitions from legal liability in their home states. And Minnesota has set a goal of moving to 100% carbon-free energy by 2040. I'm Keith Steffen reporting for Labor Radio. And now for some announcements. The Juneteenth celebration of our country's newest federal holiday kicks off with a parade to the festival grounds at Penn Park. The parade departs at 10.45 a.m. from the Fountain of Life Covenant Church. The celebration at Penn Park is from noon to 6 p.m. It will feature kids' activities, exhibits, vendors, speakers, and a robust entertainment lineup, including Rick Flowers and the Juneteenth Band, Adam Tesfaye, one of many, Sirius Singari, and many others. The event is hosted by the Kujichakalia Center for Self-Determination. For more information on this and other Juneteenth events, search Juneteenth Madison, Wisconsin 2023 on Facebook or see the City Parks webpage. Congratulations to Pryor Turnmeyer Clark, a 12th grader at Val Phillips Memorial High School, high in Madison, for her first place finish in the Wisconsin Labor History Society's annual Labor History Contest for high school students. Second place winners were Cassidy Klebs from Colgate, Lisa Sarek from West Bend, and Hunter Jerome Vania from Athelstane, Wisconsin. The winner receives $500. Second place finishers receive $300. All are invited to the birthday party for Wisconsin Civil Service Saturday, June 17th at noon outside the Wisconsin State Capitol on the State Street Steps. This event is sponsored by the Wisconsin Coalition to Save Civil Service, including public sector unions and good government groups. Organizations in the coalition include AFSCME Council 32, American Federation of Teachers Wisconsin, South Central Federation of Labor, Association of Career Employees, Wisconsin Professional Employees Council, and the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, and the NAACP. All are invited. Sponsors note that it is more important today than ever before to strengthen civil service as corporate interests threaten to overwhelm the public interest inside public agencies. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Rebecca Meyer-Rao. Thanks to editor Frank Emsbach, assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Janine Ramsey, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, 
our reader coordinator, web poster Anu Lee, and to all our readers, and the members of IBW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And I'm William Rogerberg. We'd also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WRT. Special thanks to our listeners in Cross Plains, Maggie and Anthony. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and Professor Bill Clark. (laughs) ¶¶